The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Advent or Christmas is maybe one of those time of years where um, some of us come in with maybe a sense of dread because it is a reminder that, oh, I must spend Christmas dinner with my family that I dread to be around, or this is a time of year where I remember all those things where I have regrets and mistakes and failures, and yet for some of us, uh, we come in with maybe a sense of joy and anticipation. It's a time of year where we get to spend time with family. It's a time of year where we get to give gifts, and of course, if we are children at heart, we all really know that the payoff of Christmas morning is I get gifts. But I think much like this passage, sometimes we can kind of come into the end of the year as it is and feel like a little bit like we've lost our way. Um, Regardless of how you're coming into Christmas, uh, we can kind of come into the end of the year a little bit like I am not quite sure where I am, what's going on, and where this next year is. Or maybe you have just kind of lost all sense of self-identity, right? I have no idea who I am or what's going on. And Isaiah actually speaks these words into a context where they had, as a nation, lost their way. Maybe that sounds a little familiar uh, for our current uh, political climate, but Isaiah was speaking into a context where they had just been um, beginning to uh, be taken over by foreign armies, and the people had begun to kind of just say, sure, whatever, we'll wear their jersey, who cares about God? Um, it's like, you know, like if you start wearing like, uh, you know, a Giants jersey, but you really are a Patriots fan, but you're like, well, the Giants are, they've given everything over to their enemy. Here is where Isaiah speaks into this context of not only just kind of a sense of despair, but a sense of losing their way. And he brings this message from God who says, I will step right into the middle of your mess. I will step right into the middle of that disarray, that confusion. And I will present my way, I will present myself in the middle of all of this. I will say, here is how you will find joy. Because the reality is if we're all in confusion and lost our way, do we really have any sense of joy? Um, It is a bit of like trying to find joy on a Black Friday, right? Maybe you find joy, uh, you found that one deal. But, and, I mean, unless you really enjoy crowds, I mean, who really enjoys finding joy in these massive crowds clamoring and fighting over each other to get the deal, right? Well, you can imagine, basically, chapter 9 of Isaiah is a little bit like that. Um, here, uh, there is a clamoring of everybody going their own way. Everybody's kind of lost and kind of figuring their way out. Uh, on a Black Friday deal, maybe it's at Walmart and everybody's trying to find that special TV deal. And in the middle of all that, the lights go off. Everybody's kind of trying to feel around for the price tag. In the middle of all that, one person stands up with a flashlight, a mag light with a, a big beacon and says, here's the way. Right? That's what Isaiah 9 is doing for our hearts amidst losing our way, amidst feeling confusion, amidst ending the year. God comes in the midst of all of that and he says, uh, I'm giving you a son. I'm giving you the king. I'm giving you the one that will save you, that will renew you, and that will give you eternal, lasting, and increasing joy. So here's the main point for what we're looking at this morning in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, for those who know darkness, Jesus becomes your increasing joy. That's the main point of this passage this morning. For those who know darkness, Jesus becomes our increasing joy. Because darkness will never give us joy, and yet we tend to always 
try to wring out this world to give us that eternal, lasting joy. But Jesus comes into the middle of our darkness, into those things that we struggle with and the things that would give us confusion and disappointment. And he says, I will be your increasing joy, not just a joy, not just a joy that's going to kind of provide for a few weeks, but Jesus is in this passage presented to us as our increasing joy, right? This Christmas season, we will have many ways in which we can enjoy the cultural dynamics of the Christmas season and kind of put little band-aids over our darkness and pains and hurts and sins. But Jesus comes in and flips the entire script. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask the passage some questions. We're going to ask the passage some questions. We're going to ask whose joy will increase, right? Because if we're saying for those who know darkness, Jesus becomes our increasing joy. Well, whose joy will increase? What is this? Who, for who is this joy for? And then we're going to ask how will this joy increase? How, how will this joy get into our souls and increase in such a way that it is ever growing? And number three, who will cause this joy to increase? And then we'll end with why will this joy increase? Of course, you could just kind of say, you could do the Sunday school answer and just kind of throw in, well, Jesus and all this, right? <laughs> but there's some dynamics of how Isaiah wants to drill this down into our souls. So we're going to pick up here in the first one. We're going to ask, whose joy will increase? Verses 1 through 3. We just read verse 1 for us and we'll stop and pause and meditate on this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun from uh, former time. I'm sorry, I skipped a line the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Right, so beginning here in the first verse here, at least in my Bible, the first line, but there will be no gloom for her who is anguished. He is immediately addressing this darkness he's going to mention here, right, verse 2, for those who walked in darkness, there is a darkness that has prevailed for the people of Israel that, that Isaiah is addressing that has caused a gloom Right. Do you, know, you know what gloom feels like? Gloom Gloom is a bit like, if you could imagine, uh, being, uh, what's, the, what's election day? What? November 7th? I don't know. Aaron, what's election day? Second Tuesday of November. Imagine, you know, we, we saw this with the 2016 election. You saw it, regardless of political commentary, you saw Hillary's Camp, you know, you saw the, the room where they were announcing slowly, like, oh, Trump has actually won. And you saw people's anguish and despair, right? And no commentary on whether you found that funny or not, but that's what that kind of looks like, like, oh my gosh, the rug has been pulled out from underneath me. And it's just kind of like, like getting stuck in tar or molasses as a, at a soul level. It's just like, ugh. Like that, that's what, that, that is what Isaiah is addressing. And it, so when he says the darkness that he is talking about, he's actually just talked about in the paragraph before this, we're not going to get into it very much, but verse 19 of chapter 8, and they, say, they will say to you, right, so here, Isaiah, you're going to come, you're going to proclaim God's goodness to the people of Israel, and they're going to respond, inquire the mediums and the necromancers. So that's a bunch of people who read tarot cards and consult the dead for understanding how to live your life who chirp and mutter, but will the people inquire of their God, right? Or verse 21, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. 
So there is a sense in which the darkness that he is addressing is not merely just kind of like, oh, our political candidate lost, candidate lost. It is a giving over of life in such a way where, okay, I just do not want God involved in this picture at all. At any, at any level, I don't want God in my life. And frankly, I'm going to blame God for all of this going wrong. <laughs> right? the, the definition, you might say, of this gloom or darkness is an unstable, heavy, confusing, foggy reality. Or a bewildering, aimless, uneasy desires. Or you might say, a wanting heart with no satisfaction. That's, that's who God is first addressing with this Christmas message of saying, but there will be no gloom. But before you get to saying there's no gloom, you have to understand what exactly he's talking about with saying that there is gloom. Right? That is what it is to live life apart from God. It is to say not merely losing out, but choosing God's enemies, choosing to live against God. Right? We all do this on a regular basis, Christian or not. There is a dynamic in which we all just kind of say to God, I'm going to, I'm going to push you out of this corner of my heart, which will mean that that corner of your heart will be a seeping cancer to the joy of your life. But here we come, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness, they have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, right? So remember this anguishing of soul, right? Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, imagine a gigantic gutter as though the lights were turned off in the Grand Canyon. Down on the bottom of it, on them, light has shone. Right? Nobody, let me just make a few comments here. Nobody asked for the light to come in. Nobody sent a petition out. Nobody, uh, nobody signed a uh, change.org, let's figure out how to get some light in here because it's so dark, right? Nobody, nobody invited it, nobody elected it, right? There, there is a dynamic in which this is a, when we use the word sovereign, say God is sovereign. He is the one who totally and absolutely does this on his own accord without any invitation from us. And he says, I want light there. I want you to who walk in a land of deep darkness, which is basically a phrase for um, living in a graveyard. <laughs> Those who live in the graveyard of death and darkness, God does a creation act, right? He is the one who speaks in and says, life will happen here. I will bring light. I will bring life. I will make new light, a different, deeper light than the darkness gives to those who reject him, Right? It is so surprising, it is similar to, has anybody ever seen these videos on YouTube where people are like hanging out in the malaise of kind of Christmas shopping and you're like sitting there eating your, your, Christmas, uh, your uh, mall food, uh, mall food court food and you're just kind of like chomping their faces off and then suddenly people stand up and they start seeing the Messiah. You know what I'm talking about? Where there's kind of like, and he will reign. You know, they, they get up in the middle of, of the, all this. And it's totally unexpected, totally surprising. Not, you don't actually know. You, you watch the faces of people in the crowd. They're just kind of like, oh, I didn't know I was sitting next to an opera singer. Like, you know, like, hey, I'm sitting here. I'm eating food. How are you doing? Good. I'm shopping. Oh, I'm also an opera singer. You know, like, it's like they just get up in the middle of it and they just surprise them. That is the sense of... The people who walked in darkness in the malaise of Christmas shopping, you might say, have seen a great and spontaneous, unexpected light. It's just like when you drop a, a Mentos, Mentos in, in, a, in a Coke, you know? Is that right? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I got it right. Yeah, don't make fun of me. <laughs> it's just like that. 
it happens suddenly, and then it just explodes. This light is so amazing and fantastic that it just explodes onto the scene in such a way that we did not expect it at all, which is why verse 3, he says, you have, he goes from saying, you who've been in deep darkness, a great light has shone upon you. Then verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are as they are glad when they divide the spoils. So the joy is so surprising that, let me just kind of put, it's like, okay, you just got laid off from your job. I have no hope of ever getting a new job because I signed a contract that I would never, you know, I would not compete. I would not work for somebody that competes with the people that I just got fired from. Oh, but then step in the next day, here's... Um, Here's actually the assets from a company we just sold off, and it will provide for you for the rest of your life. Right? Somebody just steps in. Me. Because I have that sort of money. Right? It is, it is so surprising. It is so ex- explosive that the way that he describes it is to say, right, you didn't do anything for the harvest, but you get the benefits. You see that? The joy of the harvest, right? There's a reason why at the end of the harvest, the joy of the harvest is like, I've worked for the last nine months. And now I get to enjoy the fruits of my labor, right? Well, actually, he's saying, you didn't work for anything. And this is what you get. And then he says, right, those as they are when they divide the spoils, right? Imagine after the end of World War II, finally, the war's done. We've done all the work for the last six years fighting this horrible battle. And now we get to divide the spoils. Well, the image is, you didn't do any of the battle. You didn't do any of the work. You didn't do anything to win the battle. (laughs) But... This light is given in such a way that it is over and abundant, a provision of what you might call free grace, right? That is what is being pictured here. This is what you see beginning of John, beginning of the book of John. He describes it like this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Remember this passage? And the darkness has not overcome it. Then we go here. Skip down a few verses because he's talking about the Apostle John. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Right? Here is the Christmas message. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He created, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, this is John's dramatic picture of what we've just seen here, we're beginning to see in these few verses. Jesus comes into the world in such a surprising way and makes a family for God of surprising people that you would not have expected and gives them infinite, increasing joy, right? Because we skipped over this, but I want to draw your attention here. Back to verse 1. You see, at least for me, it's the very last line of my passage. Who is the target of of this announcement, right? He just said Zebulun and Naphtali. So just so you recognize, Zebulun and Naphtali were the first first kind of like states within the, the, the country of Israel that were oppressed and taken over by their enemies. They were the first ones to get the boot. They were the first ones to be assumed and taken over. And now he says, actually, those people, they're going to, the Naphtali and Zebulun, right, the land beyond the Jordan, 
they're going to be called the Galilee of the nations. I know you kind of read over that and we're kind of like, oh, this Bible language, like. The Galilee of the nations, right? The people of God that are now defined as being for all people everywhere beyond the, the literal borders of Israel, right? So what he's saying is that the family of God goes global. The family of God, because of this great light that has broken in, it has now gone global and taken on a global name. So if you're ever wondering, like, where am I in the Bible? Actually, right there, Galilee of the Nations, King's Cross Church, that's a subtitle for you. That's for us. That means that, so who gets the increasing joy? Those people that have no hope of ever being a part of God's family, who have no interest, who have no family lineage to make a claim upon who God is, who have no bank notes to go to God's heavenly king, bank and say, you owe me. It is actually the people who worked against God that God now comes in and says, I want you to be a part of my family, to be a part of this category called Galilee of the Nations, so that now you are a part of his family. So, before we move on, whose joy will increase? Those who know their darkness. So, what is the darkness that God has come in to save you from? Right, here we come at the end of the year, and maybe these narratives and these questions can be in our mind. I never thought that I would still be wrestling with fill in the blank. I always thought that I would be further along when I was fill in the blank age. I always thought that I would have had, or I can't believe that I did fill in the blank this year. Right, those are the very moments of darkness that this passage comes in and says, God has planted a flag of victory in the middle of that and says, I got it and I'm here in the middle of it with you. Because no matter where your darkness goes, it is not far enough for God to plant and shine his great light of joy into your life. So we've spent a lot of time talking about who's in view here. And I hope you're hearing, you are. But now we're going to ask the question, how will that joy increase? How will joy increase? We're going to pick up here in verses 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, in the battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood was burned as fuel for the fire. For every yoke of his burden, right? Would we, I want to, what these are referencing is kind of like making like, uh, referencing like saying like, oh, are you going to sign your John Hancock? Like if you don't, like if you're not an American that's kind of grew up in the, at least in my family, you know, like signing your John Hancock is, is, is a phrase that comes from, John Hancock was the guy who signed his name the biggest on the Declaration of Independence because he wanted King George to be able to read it from across the room, right? I mean, what a, I just, I like that guy, you know, like we're going to give, we're going to kick you out and I want you to make sure that you can see my name written on this, but it's kind of like insider language. So when he says the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, you have broken us on the day of many. He's referring to two old Testament moments. He's referring to the book of Exodus where God comes in, destroys the, the king of Egypt who is oppressing his people and marches his people straight out of Dodge and walks them straight through a gigantic river, makes it dry so that they get on the other side and then uses that river to destroy his enemies, right? That's how he saves his people, to save 
them and make a name for himself. We call that the book of Exodus. We call that the story of God saving his people out of Egypt. And then the Midian is a frame reference to the book of Judges where God uses uh, Gideon to save his people in a miraculous and similarly miraculous way. So let me just kind of throw this up here. Can we throw this slide up here? Because there's some connections here, right? There's not going to be a test on this at the end of the, at the, uh, end of the exam here. So, um, next slide. Um, Exodus, this is kind of just some, some connections for you, right? You don't, the yoke that he refers to, that's, referred to that, that is a, that's a reference used in Leviticus to talk about the life under oppression for God's people. The burdens, right? Remember, I don't even remember the beginning of the book of Exodus where he says um, his people groaned under their burdens and then Pharaoh made their burdens heavier, right? That's the exact same word that he's using here that's prominent in the book of Exodus, right? Their shoulders that bore the burden of their darkness, right? This is referred to in Psalm 81, verse 6. And their oppressors, again, that's a word used for, the, for Pharaoh, in his system of government against them, right? It was designed in such a way, so so when he says, right, uh, Isaiah 9, for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, he is making a reference to that moment where God miraculously saves his people and he's using key language to say, it's going to be just like that for the people that God is coming to save through Jesus, right? So, not all of us live under actual, the zip code of Egypt, and have Pharaoh as our king. But there is a dynamic on the inside where we all carry around a little Pharaoh on the inside where we all want that Pharaoh to have a little bit of some dominion over us because we feel like it's going to be better for us. And God is saying, even those that you Pharaohs you carry on the inside, I am going to destroy and you will not have expected it. Right, in reference to Midian, same thing with Gideon. He had 300 soldiers and he defeated, I tried to look up the number, but like there's like no exact number on how many hundreds of thousands of, in, of soldiers that they defeated. It's the same thing. God will defeat your enemies, your sins and your weaknesses on his own terms, for his own name, in his own way. Right, so the point of these verses, and we will move on for the sake of time, is that God will accomplish in you his saving, his saving work to increase your joy. How will he do it? The way least expected. The way you would not have expected. You want God to come in and say, you know what, God, I'm really struggling with lust, and so just give me a spouse, and then I won't struggle with lust anymore. That's not the way that works. God, I'm having financial problems. And I really just wish that you would just solve my financial problems and just give me the money and move on. That's not the way that works. God, I, I really, I just, I want to feel like I've got purpose and meaning in life. And so if I just get that promotion at work, um, then I will feel like I've been successful with my life. That's not the way this works. God, if only fill in the blank for whatever it is for you. You see, how does God increase your joy? He comes in with himself, you don't participate, and you watch him do his miraculous work to change you and save you on his own terms. And just like we saw in verse 2 and 3, you see it and enjoy it. So what are the words that you would use to describe the oppression that God is saving you from? Coming to the end of the year, 
What are the oppressions that you feel in, in, your, in yourself? What are the ways in which you have cultivated pet sins, cultivated dynamics opposed to God, that you're saying, you know what, I need to repent of these things and I need to find help, but I primarily need to see God in the middle of that picture first. God writes a story. God writes a story of your deliverance. And a large part of the Christian life, frankly, is learning to be okay with God writing that story and not you having to take over the pen, right? Okay, God, I don't exactly like the way the last year has gone. <laughs> and we could sit down and talk about all those details. I don't exactly like what's going on this last year. But there are things that you're doing in me that I need to be delivered from, that I need to be okay, not only okay, love the story that you are writing in my life from this last year, and love that you're the one writing that deliverance and how you're doing it and not me. Because my story of Christian deliverance would be Disney World forever. Because <laughs> right? you guys know I love Disney World. That would be what my Christian sanctification would be. It would not be what actually God has joyfully and graciously given me. So we're going to move on. But how does he do it? God writes a story of your deliverance so that your joy can be ever-increasing in him. So, we've looked at who is the joy for, joy increasing for, how will joy increase, which pick up here in verses 6 through 7. This is the primary kind of emphasis of this passage. This is the passage that everybody knows for Christmas. Who will cause joy to increase? So, Let's read the first part of verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Let's stop there. Can I draw your attention and point out that it is a child that is born and a son that is given? Right? This is not somebody that, like, <clears throat> we need somebody, we need a candidate. Who is somebody's platform that we can invest in? How can we... How can we design a better system here? Let's, let's, let's redesign this whole thing from top to bottom. No, it is a given king. It is a given savior. It is somebody that is given because on our own terms, we could not have figured this out in a better way. Right? It is a graciously given savior because we need somebody that is very much not like us and yet very similar to us. So he is a son shares our humanity, knows who we are, lives among us, knows what it's like to be human, but he is given so that it is not something that we would have elected. So what is his name and what do we call him, right? So there are four names that are listed and we are just going to kind of break those down for a second here. Can we throw this up? Um, what will we call him who increases joy? So there's four names, one's a four... Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, if you're like me and you've read these, you're kind of like, how can I be a father and a prince at the same time? I just chill out. Like, there's like some Bible metaphors, right? They're not uh, strictly literal in the genealogical sense of the terms. But there's four terms here that are trying to describe for us who this joy increaser is. The first one is Wonderful Counselor, right? You might call this the qualifications for his ruling. How is he qualified? Well, he's a wonderful counselor. And by the way, wonderful is used over 80 times in the Old Testament and is primarily used for God and his works. So we're already on a playing field that is beyond kind of like our let's design a person, you know, 
slab, whatever you call it. Right? The majority of, the, the majority of wonderful is described with God. And so as we work through this, I want to remind us, this is a contrast to the darkness that they were experiencing. So what things do you turn to that provide a dark imitation of this joy increaser? So with the wonderful counselor, what are the things you look to for self-identity and understanding that are maybe contrary to who Jesus is, right? We can have a number of self-identities, right? Your political affiliation, your sexual affiliation, um, your denominational affiliation, your Christian playing card, whatever it is, all of those things can be turned into, I find more identity in this than who God has revealed himself to be in the wonderful counselor in his name alone. So this king is not only wonderful in the sense of God's wonder, but he's a counselor. He brings wisdom. He brings a unique perspective. He brings the defining understanding of the world and your life. And that is his name, right? Whoever has that on their LinkedIn account. I understand everybody's life. (laughs) That's not on my LinkedIn account. I'm not even sure what's on my LinkedIn account. But for Jesus... He is called Wonderful Counselor, understanding life's decisions in his terms brings us under this Wonderful Counselor. He is the one who understands my life. What does it look like to understand your life without Jesus? He is also called Mighty God. This is his person and power, right? This is used in Isaiah 10, 21 to describe God himself. Right, so again, Isaiah is very clearly saying um, this person, this Savior, this Jesus is both God and man, but he is emphasizing the divine side of it right now. He is saying he is the mighty God. While Jesus is laying in the manger on Christmas morning, he is also in his baby sleep upholding the universe by the power of just existing. That is who he is. So he is also called Everlasting Father. He is not only the mighty God who upholds the universe by himself, wonderful counselor who is the wisdom of the universe, he is Everlasting Father. So now we go from his qualifications and his person to now describing his relationship. Right? Typically, we have American system, we have uh, we elect a president, and they get two terms, and that's just the way it is. Back then, they would have elected somebody, or somebody would have um, taken over, to put it lightly. <laughs> they would have taken over and become the king, and then they would have died. But here, he emphasizes, no matter who the, how great that king is, whether it's the King Saul, um, who is a jerk face, or David, who is also a jerk face, who actually loved God and died, This king is everlasting, right? He never dies, but he is an everlasting father, right? And that point of that is just to say there is a relationship in which he has to you of care and concern that is different than any other king, right? No king can actually have care and concern for all of his subjects, can he? (laughs) I mean, I barely remember my four kids' names, right? Like... Let alone, I, I pray for each of you on a daily basis, and I have to have a list to keep everybody's names in front of me and straight, right? We're talking about billions of people, that this king has a personal 
concern and care for and leadership of in your life that is, requires, if anything, to say the least, a divine understanding, a divine mind, the glorious mind of God himself focused and directed on you so that he has a perspective of concern and care for you that is different than anybody else, right? So can I throw up these verses here next? These are just to describe a little bit of this fatherly care for Psalm 103, 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, right? You might say, as Jesus, as our king, shows compassion to his children, so the Lord Jesus shows compassion to those who fear him, right? Here is you under Jesus' specific care. Isaiah later, for you are our father, although Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, Lord, are our father, our redeemer from old is your name. And then at 64.8, but now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are the potter, we are the work of your hand. You see, this father that Isaiah has in mind is a father who specifically, personally cares about you, takes an interest in you. And maybe for some of us, as we come to the end of the year and we think about this passage, we think, my father is nothing like that. My, my earthly father is nothing like that. And this is a part of the the joy of Christmas, is that in Jesus, you are wrapped into the arms of of a father who knows you, who is safe, who enjoys you and loves you in a way that no earthly father could ever personally do. He provides for you in a way that is unique. He knows your needs and he guides you in a way that is personal, tender, caring, and gentle. And then the last thing that we call this Savior is that he is the Prince of Peace. And this speaks more to the society that his, this Jesus is making. It is a society of harmony. It is a society of what the Bible calls shalom, right? Peace between God and men, flourishing that gives life and joy, right? It is something that is absolutely desired for and we all ache for and yearn for, and yet none of our elections ever seem to result in it. <laughs> This is the society that this Jesus creates because of who he is. Personal fulfillment, a joy between us. This is a society, right? The New Testament calls us, we are um, priests in the kingdom of our God who give mercy to each other because our Prince of Peace has brought mercy that dwells among us and defines who we are. And just to kind of wrap it up here in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And the throne of David and of his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is the society that he has come to create. Right? This is a never-ending grace society. That's character is grace and joy. That's forever, it's time and space is forever grace and joy. It is grounded on God's ability to keep his promises for us to enjoy this and it rests in his person so that even our ups and downs in life don't affect this, right? Just take a, a, a moment and consider that the New Testament, when it says, right, for example, 2 Corinthians three eighteen, for we see him with unveiled face and we become like him, right? That is where he is directing our eyes, right? This 
king who is defined as being, right, a mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and wonderful counselor, he is the one that will, in seeing him for Christmas, seeing him this Advent season, he is the one that changes our hearts from the inside out, right? So, you know, Christianity is not a, um, it's not an, it, there are intellectual demands of the Bible to understand what the Bible says, but, the, but Christianity is primarily a desire-oriented understanding of our lives and who we are. We have desires that are misdirected by our thinking and actions and all that stuff, but those desires are primarily what God is after and changing. And so when he presents this picture of Jesus as being wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, he is putting a fish hook in your heart to tra- change and direct your desires to become more like him so that you enjoy him and want him, right? That is what Isaiah is doing here. He is saying, if you want joy at Christmas, you need to see who that joy is. He has a name tag on. It's called Jesus, <laughs> right? This is very different than the ability for us to give gifts to each other. And yeah, it's good to give gifts and get joy from doing that. But to see the face of joy himself, that is absolutely unique to Christmas. That is absolutely unique to Jesus himself. To see his face, to see him at a heart level and say, that is who I want. He is joy himself. So let's end with this. If the main point of what we were looking at is for those who know darkness, Jesus becomes your increasing joy. Why will joy increase? Let's look at this last line here, verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, right? Here is what is, is going on all in Isaiah chapter 9. The Lord is one who plans the future and he shatters the foes that would, dest- that would take you away from his future for you. And he keeps his promises on his own terms for his own name. It is God's zeal, his commitment that keeps you in his joy, right? He is the one that grounds your, your joy in himself, right? It is said of Jesus that the zeal of the Lord of hosts consumed him. For The zeal for his house consumed him, right? What that means is that Jesus' commitment for God's name being known and built and enjoyed so consumed him. Actually, it was because of that joy that he died so that you could be a part of God's house and family, right? So this is Hebrews 12, 2, right? Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the what? For the intellectual knowledge of knowing that he has accomplished his purposes in this world. No, for the satisfaction of having accomplished his goals and missions and actually, you know, been productive with his life. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, the purpose of Advent is actually not just your joy, but Jesus' joy, right? Jesus comes into our darkness and amidst a swoop of drawing us out of our darkness and saving us to be a part of his family, he gets joy himself at you getting joy in who he is, right? That is the purpose of what he is doing at Christmas. This is not just kind of merely, oh, how can we figure out how to be better people? No, it's how do we recognize and enjoy the real person and what he did to accomplish not only our joy as a byproduct of him getting his joy. That is the relationship, the dance between joy and joy. 
within God's universe, right? He has saved us in such a way that his zeal, that his zeal, verse seven, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this so that when it comes time for Christmas and you don't get that Christmas gift that you wanted, or you don't get that promotion, or you don't get that bonus, or you've lost your job, or the struggles still continue, or the family member still has a struggle, or things are not working out the way you wanted to, or you're still not quite getting that victory in your life that you're looking for, where is your joy grounded? It is not in those things. It is not in any of those things changing, though those would be good things to change. It is in Jesus himself. Jesus himself is the ground. He is the the foundation. He is the aim. He is the one in which all the fish hooks of your heart latch onto and where all the electrifying joys come from. He himself. So for those who know darkness, if you know who you are at the end of this year, here's the great hope of the Christmas message. Jesus himself becomes your increasing joy. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage and consider what you have done to save us in Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us, God, I pray that our hearts should be stirred looking at Isaiah 9, enjoying who Jesus is. Lord, I pray that this morning as we sing your praises that our hearts should be filled with your joy for who you are. So now, Lord, it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.